Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bazaar, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. So Declan, tell us what story you're going to be talking about today. Today, I'm going to be talking about the Stanley Milgram experiment. And Oh. For everyone drinking along with us, a fun drinking game is every time I say the word experiment in my story, you have to drink. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay. What are you going to be telling us about today, Mom? I am going to be talking about the Chicago Tylenol murders. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So to go with that story, I... Uh, went real outside the box on my drink and I were making the painkiller to go with the drink. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. So the painkiller is two and a half ounces of rum, four ounces of pineapple juice, one ounce of orange juice, one ounce of cream of coconut. The steps are to combine all ingredients in the cocktail shaker with ice and shake and then strain into an ice-filled highball or hurricane glass so are you ready for this drink metal cup you're using a metal cup i'm using a high highball collins glass i don't know whatever it's a tall glass Hmm. ready cheers (sighs) oh delicious it's so good. I love the coconut in it and how the pineapple juice just, oh, man, reminds me of vacation. I love that drink. Yeah, so tasty. We went to the Bahamas. That, yes. I think that's the first yep. time we had it, right? I think so, yeah. And I was surprised that your dad liked it because it had coconut in it, and he hates everything <laughs> associated with coconut. So True. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the story that I have to go with this uh, drink is not a fun holiday adventure, but it's pretty, pretty nasty. So let me jump into it. Trying to open a bottle of pain pills, painkillers, can be nearly impossible some days. From the shrink wrap plastic cover over the cap to the vacuum sealed foil over the opening, it can feel daunting to get into the pill bottle for the first time, especially if you're in severe pain. Those features weren't always in place. In fact, they didn't exist before the early 1980s. Those annoying little safety measures could have likely saved several lives in 1982. 
but unfortunately manufacturers hadn't started the safety processes until after seven people were killed in the Chicago area. Uh-oh. Yeah. So if you've ever wondered why it's so hard to get into painkillers, this is why. <laughs> in September 1982, Mary Kellerman was 12 years old and in the seventh grade in Elk Grove Village a suburb of Chicago, about 40 minutes away from the city. She was an only child and enjoyed playing guitar, making pottery, practicing gymnastics, riding her pony, and playing video games with her dad. On September 28th, Mary's mom, Gina, bought a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol at a local store. The next morning, Mary took one capsule because she had a sore throat and wasn't feeling well. A few short hours later, Mary passed away, at a nearby hospital after she collapsed in her bathroom at home. Yeah. That same morning, Adam Janus took a day off from work because he wasn't feeling well. Adam worked for the Postal Service and was the father of two young children. He had stopped at a store in Arlington Heights, suburb of Chicago, and purchased a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol. Upon getting home, he told his wife that he was going to take a couple of Tylenol pills and go to bed. When she checked in on him a short while later, he was in bed having convulsions. He was taken to a nearby hospital, but died soon after arrival. Adam's cause of death was ruled cardiac arrest, even though he was young and apparently healthy. Adam's family, including his younger brother, Stanley, and his wife, Teresa, returned to Adam's home to begin the mourning process with Adam's wife and children. Stanley and Teresa, not feeling well from the stress of the day, each took some of the Tylenol pills to help alleviate their pain. Stanley soon grabbed his chest and collapsed on the floor. Within a few minutes, Teresa also became ill and started having convulsions. Stanley and Teresa were taken to the same hospital that Adam had been taken to and both eventually passed away. Stanley was fairly soon after arrival that he passed, but his wife took a day or so to pass away. Mary Lynn Reiner was 27 years old and living in Winfield, another suburban neighborhood of Chicago. She had recently given birth to her fourth child. Mid-afternoon of September 29th, Mary took at least one Tylenol capsule. Soon after taking the pill, she lost consciousness and was taken to a nearby hospital. Following morning, she was removed from life support and died. 31-year-old Mary McFarland worked for the Illinois Bell Telephone Company. On September 29th, she reported to coworkers that she was feeling dizzy after she had taken a Tylenol pill. She then collapsed, and paramedics were tending to her within minutes. She was transported to an area hospital, but she passed away the following morning. 35-year-old flight attendant Paula Prince lived alone in a high-rise apartment in Chicago. On September 29th, just after 9 p.m., Paula purchased a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol at a store on her way home. Soon after arriving home, she took the Tylenol. Her body was discovered by her sister in her apartment two days later. Paula's work had contacted the family when she failed to show up to work and her sister went to check on her. All of these deaths were not linked initially. Which makes sense. I mean, why would you 
I, it was such a short period of time. I don't think there was any way for them to realistically go, oh, this one, that one, similar traits, all different hospitals, except for the the brothers and the sister-in-law. Yeah, and Tylenol is such a everyone takes Tylenol, so it's not like yeah. oh, it's suspicious that they bought the Tylenol and then died. So Right. Right. So they weren't linked initially. However, the Janus family and Mary Kellerman's were soon thought to somehow be related when it was discovered that the lot number of their Tylenol bottles were the same. This was discovered when nurse Helen Jensen, the public health nurse for the Janus's neighborhood, was asked to investigate the strange deaths. Having heard that all the deceased family members had taken Tylenol that day, nurse Jensen collected the Tylenol bottle that had just been purchased by Adam Janus and provided it to the medical examiners. When the Janus's bottle was opened, investigators noticed a smell of bitter almonds which the medical examiner knew was a probable sign of cyanide. So it was soon discovered in Mary Kellerman's case that the paramedics had collected the Tylenol bottle from her home and that the bottle was compared with the Janus bottle. That's how they were able so, to match the numbers. So in, in movies, like when they take cyanide and they foam out of the mouth, is that just fake or? I don't know. Not sure. I feel like that would be an indicator, like, oh, all these people are dead and have been foaming at the mouth. But I mean, well, they might have been a little bit because of the convulsions, maybe. I don't know. None of the stories about the the deaths talked about any um, foaming at the mouth or anything like that. But numerous of them did talk about convulsions, so it's possible. Uh, the county toxicologist noted that several of the remaining pills in the bottle in the bottles were discolored and misshapen. Testing of the unusual looking pills proved positive for potassium cyanide. Based on the matching lot numbers, Johnson and Johnson, the manufacturer of Tylenol, placed a recall of bottles with that lot number. However, it was soon discovered that the specific lot in the recall were not the only bottles affected. The other victims' bottles were different lot numbers, and so on October 5th, there was a nationwide recall of all Tylenol and production of Tylenol products was stopped. Approximately 31 million bottles of Tylenol were recalled with a retail value of over $100 million at that time. Yeah, and that is equivalent to about $312 million in 2023 and that's so, all the money they're making on tylenol how imagine like tylenol the more yeah. expensive drugs that they make holy shit right yeah but still that's a huge chunk of change i mean yeah oof. during the investigation it was discovered that the pills were manufactured in two different states this led to the belief that the pills were tampered with after production Five total bottles containing cyanide-tampered pills were identified in the seven deaths, but there were several other bottles found on the shelves in other Chicago stores that did not cause any deaths. So there were still poisoned bottles sitting around. Yeah. That's just an advertisement for Advil. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So law enforcement reviewed videos from the stores, but were not able to identify a viable suspect. In December 1982, James William Lewis was arrested in connection with the cases. But not in the way that you would think. Lewis had sent a letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding a million dollars to stop the killings. When he was arrested, he discussed how the tampering could have occurred. So he basically said, um, the killer purchased bottles of Tylenol, added the cyanide to the capsules, then returned those altered bottles to the shelves. But then he's like, oh, but I didn't do it. I'm just speculating that's how it was done. Criminals yeah. are fucking stupid. Well, although investigators looked at Lewis to be the one responsible, there was no specific evidence linking him to the crime. Yeah. Okay, so just a, a weird guy. <laughs> he wanted money. He wanted money. He did admit to sending the extortion letter and was sentenced to 10 years for that crime. A, a couple different sources Whoa. I read said 10 years to 20 years. Um, and then one said that he served 12 years. So I don't know. He spent some years in prison for it. Okay. And they still kind of considered him because of the statements that he had made and the extortion letter. They still kind of thought that he might have been the one responsible, but they didn't have any evidence at the time linking him. So he spent time in jail, but it was for extortion. It wasn't for the poisonings. For a long time, he'd been considered a reasonable suspect in the poisonings. But in 2010, both he and his wife submitted to fingerprint and DNA analysis. Lewis's DNA sample did not match any DNA associated with the tampered bottles. So that basically ruled him out. Okay. Yeah. Regardless, there has been talk even recently about Lewis's involvement and potential guilt re regarding the pills. So... Some people still think he did it and didn't leave a DNA sample on the bottles. I don't know. Last year, 2022, marked the 40-year anniversary of the incident, and investigators were still discussing Lewis's involvement. Other suspects have been considered over the years, and even with recent technological advancements, there still hasn't been anyone identified as the one responsible for the deaths, and the case remains unsolved at this time. Due to this incident, Johnson & Johnson was the company that immediately started leading the effort at tamper-resistant packaging. An interesting aside is that there were several copycat killings used uh, using tampered pain relievers. One estimate that I read said hundreds of copycat attacks occurred, but not all of those resulted in deaths. Wow. So I'm sure in the future I'll, I'll look into and we'll do some reporting on those and, and talk about some of those copycat cases. So that's pretty amazing that just in a short period of time, there were a bunch of copycats, like within months across the states. So, Jeez. yeah, it gave some people some very bad ideas. <laughs> but that is my story about the Chicago Tylenol murders. Nice. Have you heard uh, about that before? Uh, I th I've heard like just about it. I didn't hear any details. I just 
know oh, okay. that someone poisoned a bunch of Tylenols. Yeah. So yeah, that's super interesting. It's terrifying. As yeah, much as I get terrifying. annoyed having to get into all of the safety stuff, I'm like, well, at least I know it's not poisoned. See, I thought it was for like children. Like, oh, like the safety from, factors. Uh, yeah, to stop them from well, just that's eating what a the, bottle of Tylenol. The twist and turn lids are for. Those are the oh, child-resistant, okay. child-tampering caps or whatever they want to call True. them. But, you, you know, if you it. ever open a <laughs> brand new bottle and it's like hell to get into that box and then a lot of them have the shrink wrap plastic over the cap so you have to break that off. And then when you take the lid off, they also have the foil lid inside that you have to get through so true yeah and the foil covering drives me crazy because i want all of it off from around the rim <laughs> and i can never get it all the way off and it's just like one of those annoying factors I just poke of a hole my in life it with my thumb i know i know you do <laughs> i know no, that's how normal people react to those things <laughs> I am not a normal person. I want to get all of the remainder of the foil off the rim. And it never <laughs> works. Hey there, fellow true crime aficionados. We're the host of Bad Axe, a true crime podcast. I'm Danielle. And I'm Aaron. Join us every Thursday for twisted true crime tales of dark deeds and despicable people. We focus on lesser known unique stories with a new case each week. We've covered family annihilators, cannibals, revenge killings, killer kids, mysterious murders, survivor stories, and much more. We've even tackled stories of people who blame zombies, vampires, ghosts, and voodoo for their bad acts. Of course, we know they're the only ones to blame. You can find us everywhere you get your podcast, or you can visit our website at badaxpod.com. If you like fresh stories and new perspectives on crime, Bad Axe will be your new jam. Join Bad Axe every Thursday. Stay safe, y'all. See you soon. Well, tell me about your story, because it doesn't sound familiar to me and so it what word is our drink word experiment experiment okay also teacher and learner would uh oh that's too. a lot that's a lot for yeah. me to remember three <laughs> words okay i'll try because i still have so, a fair amount of my drink left from talking yeah i that's usually how it goes whoever's uh yes. talking first has their drink left until have, the end they have all their drink yeah on August 7th, 1961, in the basement of Lindsay Chitterden Hall at Yale University, a bizarre experiment was conducted. The experiment was created by Stanley Milgram and we would be known as the Milgram Experiment. <laughs> yeah, starting off strong. <laughs> hey, I got I got 3 in. The goal of this study was to understand the psychology of genocide. 
Milgram uh, sent out an advertisement asking for male participants ages 20 to 50 to study memory. The ad claimed that it would need the men for one hour and would pay $4, which is around uh, $38 today. What year did you say this was again? 61. 61. Okay. 61 to 62. $4. Okay. 40 men were involved with the experiment throughout its duration. The experiment required three people per session, the experimenter, the teacher, and the learner. And that's just what they uh, labeled it as in the experiment, which it kind of doesn't make much sense. But the experimenter would give orders to the teacher who believed that they were helping with the study. However, they were actually the subject of the experiment and the learner was actually a hired actor. The teacher okay. and the learner would arrive. Hmm? What? Tell me again. The teacher is actually the subject. Yes. And the learner is an actor. Yeah. But is that the correct? teacher doesn't okay. know that. Yeah. So every Got time it. I say teacher, you can just um, think of the subject. I'll try and okay. say the subject. But. No, I just wanted to make sure that I was linking up all of the people correctly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hi, Lulu. Lulu's not going to make an appearance? No, she's just staring at me. Oh, she's giving so, you the evil eye. The teacher and the learner would arrive at the session together and draw slips of paper to determine who would play the role of the teacher and the learner. However, both slips of paper said teacher. So when the actor pulled his role, he would tell the teacher that he was the learner. So both okay. like they drew out of hats and then and they it wasn't all drew really teacher. actually random. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Smart. Uh the the two men were led into another room which contained a desk for the experimenter, an electric chair for the learner, and a control oh. panel that was connected to the chair that would be controlled by the teacher. However, the chair and control panel were obstructed from each other so that the teacher could not actively see the learner. But they were in the okay. same room. There was just like a little dividing wall between them. Okay. So the experimenter strapped the learner into the electric chair, ensuring that they could not escape. Also, he would give the teacher a small test shock before the experiment began so that he could experience what the learner would be experiencing. Okay. The teacher was then given a list of word pairs that he had to teach the learner. The teacher began by reading the list of word pairs to the learner. The teacher would then read from the first word of each pair and list four possible answers. The learner would press a button to indicate his response. And if the answer was correct, the teacher would, or if the answer was incorrect, sorry, the teacher would administer a shock to the learner with the voltage increasing in 15 volt increments for each wrong answer. Ooh. If, if the learner answered correct, the teacher would read from the next word pair. There wouldn't be any positive reinforcement or anything. The volts ranged from 15 to 450. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
The shock generator included verbal markings that vary from slight shock to danger, severe shock. Okay. So there was a device that would play a pre-recorded sound of shocks at different frequencies to the subject. And so that was just to make him believe that the person was actually being shocked. Okay. Once the teacher had administered the highest level of electrical current, the learner was to, was directed to remain silent, giving the appearance that they were seriously injured. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> yeah. oh, that's so mean. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So if the subject tried to end the experiment early, the experimenter had a list of prompts to give to the subject starting in this order. So if they said, oh, I want to stop, the first thing they would say is, please continue or please go on. And if they tried to end it again, the experimenter would say, the experiment requires that you continue. And if they try again, this is absolutely essential that you continue. And if they try and cancel it again, they say, you have no other choice. You must go on. Yeah. Okay. The subject so these wished- are all things that the teacher is supposed to say to the learner, right? No, this is what the ex- the person watching the experiment is saying oh. if the teacher wants to end this, the oh, session. Oh, the teacher wants to end it. Okay. Yeah, the teacher's right. like, oh, I don't want to fucking sh- kill this guy. Then okay. okay, this is what the experimenter would say. Ooh. And if the subject wished to stop after the fourth prompt, then the experiment was ended. So they had to ask them to stop five times before it would be stopped. Okay. Uh, The experimenter also had ways to make the teacher have specific comments. So if the teacher asked whether the learner might suffer uh, permanent physical harm, the experimenter replied, although the shocks may be painful, there is no permanent tissue damage, so please go on. The teacher said that the learner clearly wants to stop, the experimenter replied, whether the learner likes it or not, you must go on until he has learned all the word pairs correctly. So please go on. Okay. So the experiment found unexpectedly that a very high proportion of subjects would fully obey the instructions with every, uh, every participant going up to 300 volts and 65% going up to 450 volts. Ooh. They're just Almost following directions. Subject, yeah. Almost every subject was uncomfortable with the experiment, and one subject was so uncomfortable that they suffered a seizure mid-session. Yeah, they were the in so much teacher? stress that they're just like, yeah, the teacher had a, a oh. seizure. Oh my yeah. gosh. So Milgram summarized the experiment in this 1974 article titled The Perils of Obedience. The legal and uh, philosophic aspects of obedience are enormous importance, but they say very little about how most people behave in concrete situations. I set up a simple experiment at the Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person, simply because he was ordered to by an experimental scientist. Stark authority was pitted against the subjects, strongest moral imperatives against hurting others and with the subject's ears ringing with the screams of the victim. Authority won more often than not. 
the extreme willingness of adults to go on almost any length of the command of an authority uh, constitutes the chief findings of the study in the fact that most urgently demanding explanation. Ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, when the destructive effects of their work become uh, patently clear, they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality. Relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. Interesting. This guy is just fucking weird. So this is not the only time Milgram executed this experiment. Uh, he set up some experiment in a small innocuous office building to see if the location would change the findings. Because if you see an ad and it's like, oh, there's a Yale exper- uh, uh, experiment. But if it's just like, oh, I'm running this experiment in this little seedy office building, then yeah, he, he thought that might affect it. Uh, Milgram but also did it helped affect other it, re- like the location? Sorry. No, he said it made no to difference. Interrupt. Okay. Yeah. Milgram also helped out other researchers set up uh, similar experiments in other countries. Thomas Blass of the University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, performed a meta-analysis on the results of the repeated performances in the experiment. And he found that while the percentage of participants who are prepared to inflict fatal voltage ranged from 28 to 91%, there was no significant trend over time. And the average percent for U.S. studies, 61%, was close to the one for non-U.S. studies, which was 66%. Wow. So pretty much it it was like average almost through every experiment that uh, 60, around 60% of people. Between 60 and 70%. Yeah. Okay. While many claim this experiment was cruel, 84% of the former participants surveyed later said that they were glad or very glad to have participated, which is just weird. What? Did they yeah, know at I that don't... point what it was? Uh, when they yeah. said, I'm so glad or very after. glad to participate? Okay. Yeah. This is years, years later. I think it was 20 years that they uh, interviewed these people. One subject wrote this to Milgram. While I was a subject in 1964, although I believed that I was hurting someone, I was actually totally unaware of why I was doing so. Few people ever realize when they are acting accordingly to their own beliefs and when they are meekly submitting to authority. To permit myself to be drafted with understanding, uh, oh, uh, I've permitted myself to be drafted with the understanding that I am submitting to authority's demand to do something very wrong would make me f- uh, frightened of myself. I'm fully prepared to go to jail if I am not granted conscious objector status. Indeed, this is the only course I would take to be faithful in what I believe. My only hope is that members of my board act accordingly to their their consciousness. I put way too many quotes in here, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) While this experiment was designed to better understand how average German citizens gave in to Nazi commands, James Waller, chair of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Keene State College, formerly chair uh, of Whitworth College. Um, I want to restart that. James Waller, uh, chair of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Keene State College, formerly chair of Whitworth College Psychology. Uh, 
department expressed the opinion that Milgram experiments do not correspond well with uh, the events that happened in the Holocaust. So, how can he make that whole... argument? I wonder. I, like, can you just. It seems so, pretty reasonable for Milgram to make that correlation. So, the. Hang on, wait, I forgot the guy's name already. So, James um, said that. It, it doesn't correlate well because the subjects in the Milgram experiment didn't really un- have a full understanding of what they were doing. But he said that the Nazi soldiers who were purposely um, perpetrating those acts knew exactly wh- how much pain they were inflicting. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was all fake pain and that the people were like, oh, I, I'm not okay with this, but the Nazi soldiers were inflicting real pain that they were watching with their own eyes. So true said it didn't correlate well. Hmm. That is the very interesting experiment that took place at Yale. Wow. That's a, there's a lot of weird college experiments. There are uh, Stanford. Just college itself. Yeah. Just college itself is a horrible experiment. (laughs) True. It's terrible. Except for they're not paying you for that experiment. They're just making right. you pay them. <laughs> right? A, a shit ton of money, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Do well, do you have a chaser, chaser for us today? Oh, I said it first. No, I said it first. <laughs> I got to find mine. Okay. So my chaser today is a show recommendation, and that is The Night Agent on Netflix. Have you seen it yet, Declan? I don't think so. Oh, it's really good. I think it's pretty new. Basically... Uh, This guy is an FBI agent whose job it is to answer a secret phone, uh, a secret phone line that is used by other agents who need help. And he gets a call that leads him on an investigation uh, to find someone in the White House who may be planning a terrorist attack. And Hmm. he was tasked with this job after there had been a bombing on a train that he was on and there were a lot of rumors that he was somehow involved in it so he was kind of fighting this idea of everyone thinking that he might have been involved but the agency still trying to give him a job because there wasn't any real evidence to say he was involved and then this random call comes in and he takes it and it's about these agents that are undercover and covert looking into something and they need help and he can't get to help them. And it's, it's a really good show. I can't remember how many episodes there are, but we finished it recently and it's, it's a good fast paced whodunit spy kind of thing. It's really good. I highly recommend it. I'll check that out. What is, what is your chaser? 
So it's a video that I saw on Instagram of two kids playing in a backyard and their ball accidentally falls into a fountain and they have a German shepherd who's watching them. And the kid tries to reach into the fountain to get the ball, but he's uh, too small. And so the German shepherd runs up behind him and pulls him by the coat away from the fountain and then grabs a uh, one of those pool strainers like to clean leaves uh-huh. out of the pool. He grabs oh, it with yeah. his mouth and then fishes the ball out of the fountain and brings it back to the kid. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What a good dog. And the dog's wearing a t-shirt the whole time. It's, it's funny. Oh, my God. You have to send that to me. I want to see that <laughs> so bad. That sounds hilarious. I love that. I love well, that. Uh, I, I want that. You need to send it to me. <laughs> okay, I will. I'll see if I can okay. uh, put it in the video too. But Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Well, I enjoyed hearing about the Tylenol killings. I didn't know all the details yeah. about that. And thanks for telling me about another creepy experiment done at uh, a college. <laughs> yeah. I definitely had not heard that one. That was pretty good. Yeah, that one... It's not as bizarre as the uh, Star Stargate project that I did uh, before. Oh yeah, yeah. That was another college experiment. Yeah, it was. But, you you find anyway. some real weird experiments out there. There's a lot of them, and that's just the ones we know yeah. about. Imagine the ones we right? don't know. Right? No about. kidding. Yeah, I don't even want to know about the ones we don't know about. If. If the CIA is willing to take the rap on MK Ultra, there's probably something worse that they're hiding. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Love you, Mom. Thank you, everyone. We appreciate it. I love you, bud. Bye. Bye. Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.